You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled 2020 Holiday Webinar, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911. Okay, let's go ahead and get this show on the road. And once again, thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm super excited uh, today. I welcome uh, Don Bush, who's our VP of Sales and Marketing, and Harlan Hudson, who's a Director of Strategic Partnerships. Um, I think between these two gentlemen, we we probably have uh, decades of experience in the payments industry. So I imagine that um, we're going to have um, a really, really great conversation today about the upcoming holiday season and uh, the impacts that uh, COVID-19 is expected to have um, as well. Uh, Don and Harlan, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, and, thanks, Jared. I'm not sure I like the decades comment, but we'll we'll <laughs> let you slide with that. Yeah. Well, Har- Harlan, do you, do you want to? Uh, normally at the top, I like to kind of talk a little bit about what Chargebacks 911 does, just uh, for anyone that's a little bit new to our brand and uh, to our company. Do, do you mind kind of handling that today? Sure. Yeah. Happy to do that. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's glad I'm glad to be here, and uh, we're we're looking forward to the topic today. Mostly, we're looking forward to Christmas. So. The way I like to think about it is the only good reason to to uh, to get a charge back is because you sell a lot of stuff, right? So the idea here is that uh, if you sell more, you're going to get chargebacks. It's a, it's a fact of life, but that doesn't mean you have to, shall we say, put up with the consequences of chargebacks. So what we do here at Chargebacks, what we've been doing for about a decade now is we do three things super well. We prevent chargebacks from happening in the first place using the latest prevention tools from the card brands like Visa MasterCard. We prevent chargebacks. We also reduce the issuance of chargebacks by using big data to analyze your processes as a merchant, processes and practices that might be leading to uh, things that we call merchant error that might lead to chargebacks. Uh, so that's that's... Uh, a super important part of what we do. And then finally, of course, we recover lost revenue on uh, chargebacks that have been filed wrongly against the merchant. So in, in, a, in a high level way, that's, that's our mission in life. All right, great. Okay, so uh, today's webinar is gonna be loosely based on the um, uh, guide that we recently recently released called the Chargeback Holiday Handbook. Um, If you haven't had a chance to take a look at that guide, um, I uploaded it into the handout section. So there's a link there that'll take you directly to the guide. Um, We're gonna kind of follow along a little bit and we're gonna add some additional context and um, provide some additional information and insight that will hopefully uh, um, add some some color and commentary to the information that's uh, included in the guide itself. Um, so, so the first sort of thing that the guide points out, and I think it's interesting to talk about, is, um, you know, what what kind of an experience we had in 2019. Um, as far as I can tell, Harlan, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, 2019 and and um, you know, sort of the records that that we broke back then, and and what the holiday season was like back then? Sure. Uh, you know, it it brings a tear to my eye because. 
<laughs> I love 2019 compared to 2020, <laughs> just like everybody else. But sure, I mean, when you, you think about uh, retail sales uh, growing by 4.1% over 2018, I mean, that 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 represent that that sounds like a small you know percentage, but it's actually a you know billions and billions and billions of dollars. So that's a huge thing, and it'll be interesting to see when we cover you know what happened uh, the next year, how that how that's going to work out coming into the end of 2020. But but very important that as you grow retail sales again, you're going to have chargebacks. E-commerce grew by 14.6. I think we'll be seeing that uh, even greater over, uh, you know, 2020. We'll see that for obvious reasons. And then uh, $730 billion in purchases. That, that, is a, that is a huge number of consumers buying online and really in a workflow that creates opportunity for both uh, criminal fraud, account takeovers, that kind of thing, but also uh, refunds going through their issuer banks. So uh, we like to say that only 16% of consumers call their merchant for a refund. The rest of them call their bank, and that leads to a chargeback typically. That's not a good thing, uh, but it is a reality of life. So yeah, uh, we had a great year in 2019. Let's see how that goes in 2020 and what that means. Yeah, I think and I added a few, a few stats from 2020, but um, Don, we were talking before the webinar. Um, I think I think both of our instincts initially at the beginning of this year was that there was going to be a, a fairly drastic downturn and that while e-commerce sales was going to go up, um, retail sales just in general was going to go down. Um, we saw that a little bit, but um, I, th I think in general the, um, um, the the concern about the economic downturn, at least in in terms of, of retail sales, hasn't really borne out. Is that is that, is that your understanding as well? Yeah, when you start looking at um, what's happening online and brick and mortar, the big concern, yeah, was the brick and mortar was going to downturn, and and that was going to be that. But online, in some reports, has shown that it has in, in certain verticals actually maintain the overall sales in that sector, whether it's brick and mortar and it's turned to online or it's, um, you know, shoes, they shifted their sales from brick and mortar to online and they're still seeing growth. I mean, in May, I, I read a report that said in May, we saw $82 billion in online shopping. Well, that's more than 10% of 2019 in that one month. And yep. so I think we're seeing some huge growth in there, 74% uh, uh, in online shopping. I think we're going to see in this fourth quarter that number jump again. So 2020, I anticipate being even higher than that. And of course, as you mentioned here, higher growth means higher chargebacks. Even if, uh, even if the ratios stay the same, the volume increases. And so I think that's something that's been underestimated for the last several months and maybe caught some merchants off guard. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think the the fact that everybody's buying stuff online has really um, put a uh, focus on the, the, the impact of chargebacks um, more so than I think than when a lot of those transactions were happening in person. Um, 
so you know so so if you if they're saying 74 percent growth in online shopping and retail just in general hasn't hasn't really um gone down as much as anybody had expected i mean that's just a huge opportunity compare that to the you know what did we say 15 percent uh growth in 2019 that was sort of you know a banner year um so for online retailers there's there's a heck of an opportunity i would imagine for uh for sales that are that are about to happen, um, and, and we talked a little bit about the the impact. We we're talking about it as sort of a perfect storm. So, uh, could you talk a little bit, um, uh, Harlan, about the uh, the pressures that the holidays and the pressures that COVID nineteen might put on a merchant? Sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> well, a- absolutely, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's that's the the way to uh, to, to phrase it. Uh, first of all. Uh, it, it's going to be a good thing that uh, people are buying online in greater numbers. In some cases, they have no choice. I mean, uh, we're seeing, you know, increased, uh, you know, pressure by certain states to uh, for people to stay home again, not go out, uh, not go into restaurants, all that kind of thing. That is going to uh, precipitate uh, again another, just from a practical standpoint more buying online, right? Well, that has a little, kind of a little side effect, I think, where you're gonna have more and more people, and we've seen this, more and more people who have never bought anything online, uh, have no experience doing so, and they are going to be, or they have entered into the market um, as late entrants. That creates a whole nother group of people that really don't always know how it works, and they're going to go. They're going to turn to the thing that's comfortable to them to get a refund, for example, go back to their bank. So, so COVID nineteen is one piece. Then we have the holidays. So you combine that sort of the the, the first bucket that I mentioned. Now you've got the holidays coming. People want to express their care and love for their loved ones. They're going to go online, and if they can't have you know Christmas together, what are they going to do? They're probably going to buy more stuff, right? So that's that's an incredible thing, but it also means that there's going to be more pressure on what? Deliveries, for example. I mean, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, even Amazon couldn't couldn't get the overnight shipping thing going, right? Because there was so much demand. So you're going to have a lot of pressure on the logistical side, which could lead to chargebacks. What I would say also is that merchants, they're going to you know, this year has brought new merchants into the ecosystem as far as, you know, they weren't selling online. And this is true, especially in the, the you know, the restaurant space, uh, quick serve restaurants, um, even white tablecloth restaurants now are selling more online. So you're going to have merchants coming online that have never done this before. They're going to make mistakes. Uh, they're not going to deliver the right stuff. Maybe the food will be cold and they will get charged back. So a perfect storm, I think it's a perfect hurricane, guys. I think it's not just a storm. I think it's a massive, massive hurricane coming down on uh, the the world of retail. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in here for a second, Jared, because I want to reiterate what Harlan said is, you know, uh, you could have four clouds up here instead of just two, and one of them is newcomers, as he mentioned. Literally, uh, I think it was uh, eMarketer did some research and showed that in some sectors, 40 to 50% of their traffic is new customers. And I'll call these like Jeffrey Moore in his book, uh, they're laggards. 
they're like my father-in-law who said, oh, I, I go to the bank and see people in person. That's the way I do things. Well, when he got locked down and the banks closed their doors, he had to figure out a new way. And he did. Yeah. Um, and they're doing that all over the place. And these call them uninitiated new users have the way they do things in the old world, which is, hey, I got a problem. I call my bank. Or uh, they're not used to online policies of delivery and refunds and exchanges and uh, those types of things. And so merchants have an extra burden of actually saying to their newest customers, hey, here how, here's how things work. There's an education path there that they have to walk down that they might not have had to do as much earlier. If their policies of returns or exchanges or uh, refunds aren't clear, the first thing these guys are going to do is call their bank, and then you've got a chargeback situation to deal with. And it's um, it's not just a few. We're talking millions and millions of new customers. Yeah, I I I, I agree. I think that's a great point. Um, okay, so so one of the perfect storm elements that um, and and this happens every year. It's happened really since I I started working here. Is, is um, in November and December our online traffic from people searching for chargeback management, prevent chargebacks, the sort of keywords that, that we, we try to rank for, it just keeps going down and down and down. And, and I always get, you know, a little bit of a seasonal depression because, uh, because, <laughs> because my stats are so far off. And then in January, it'll shoot up and my stats will be amazing and everybody will, will think I'm a, a genius. And, and this happens every year. And um, Don, I think you have an understanding of why maybe this is, why, why people are more interested in, in worrying about chargebacks after um, uh, December and, and why, you know, maybe it's important that they, uh, they think about them a little bit earlier than that. There are, and I call it the chargeback lag. You know, okay. it's that lag between a purchase and a regret of a purchase, or I got the wrong thing, or I'm gonna exchange this for blue instead of red. Um, the holidays are busy enough for people. Uh, rather than do things in November and December, they just wait till the first part of the year when, when their life gets back to some uh, level of normalcy. But for the merchant, that can catch them by surprise. Remember, remember, chargebacks can be out as far as 180 days that people have the opportunity to charge something back. And oftentimes, merchants' policies say, hey, you get a refund in 30 days. You can exchange it with a receipt within 30 days. Well, if those policies don't match the logistics of an actual chargeback, that can be a problem. It can overlap. And now you've got an issuing bank saying this is a chargeback, even though a merchant's policies are 30 days, their card gives them 90, 120, 180 days to do that. So even though the holiday season looks robust. We've got millions of new users. COVID is locking people indoors. We've got more people online. It's the best year we've ever had online. Then comes January, February, March when some of the refunds and exchanges turn into chargebacks. And now we've got a whole new level of things to deal with. And so we really need to put things in place prior to that so that we can manage that now instead of hoping that that holiday hangover doesn't, uh, you know, knock us out. That's good. And then, and then, and then Harlan, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, why, why is it important that, that this timing happens? Like what, what are some of the consequences specifically to the chargeback rate when the, when the, um, you know, there's, there's a disparity between 
uh, you know, when peak sales are up and then when peak chargebacks are up? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a great question. Clearly, the, the, uh, the chargebacks do trail um, the actual transaction, delivery of goods, et cetera, et cetera. We see a, a, an average of about 28 days between the time that the, that the uh, purchase is made uh, and a chargeback is coming in. That's kind of an average. But if you think about it, if all of your, all of your purchasing, all those you know, transactions, those conversions that a merchant has in, in the, you know, sort of that uh, probably Black Friday to, you know, the 24th and maybe a little bit beyond that, you can see that your, your transactions, right, are going to, to, uh, to compensate, more than compensate for any chargebacks that are coming in in terms of a threshold. The threshold is is simply this, the chargeback to transaction ratio. So in the case of Visa, for example, it's 0.9% uh, of your, your transactions uh, month to date uh, and 100 count. And so uh, when you have massive numbers of transactions, right, in say December, and then you have a natural bump in chargebacks in January without the countervailing uh, 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 piece of all those transactions to, to keep you from being over your chargeback to transaction threshold, there's a, there could be a problem. Now, a lot of, a lot of the uh, enterprise merchants are not going to have this. They sell low risk. They're not going to be over you know over their skis on this but but a lot of times you're going to see uh merchants who don't have a tremendous amount of transactions get into trouble on their ratio very important to watch that and to be monitoring that so you don't find yourself breaching the uh, ctr yeah absolutely um, okay, the, the next uh, element that we, we're going to talk about is sort of the volume of transactions. Don, do you want to you talk about this slide? Sure. Whenever volume goes up, um, if merchants aren't ready for that new volume, if they have uh, scale problems or if they're just not used to uh, seeing that type of volume, it gives an opportunity for fraudsters to take advantage of merchants that are just overwhelmed. Um, somebody that saw let's say a thousand transactions a month, pretty nice little business, it's running really well. All of a sudden we've got COVID, new users, holidays, we're at 5,000 transactions a month and our systems are stressed. Uh, it can impact, like, uh, like Harlan said, shipping, it can impact customer service. If I'm making a phone call to a customer service line and I'm on hold, studies show if I'm on hold more than two minutes, I'm hanging up and I'm doing something else, most likely calling my bank. Um, fraudsters take advantage of this in droves. We've seen about an 85% increase in criminal fraud, not friendly fraud, not the, the chargeback fraud that we see from consumers. This is actual criminal networks stealing from merchants because many merchants were caught off guard in their systems. This is something that uh, every merchant should look at on a regular basis. Fraud systems are not a set it and forget it opportunity. Um, they are constantly in need of uh, tweaking, looking at trends, looking at new tactics in the market. And if not, 
those criminal fraud opportunities are going to rise. The problem with criminal fraud is there is no recourse. If a chargeback is due to criminal activity, the merchant simply bears the entire brunt of that cost. They lose the product, they lose the shipping, they lose uh, cost of goods, the revenue that comes from it. It's really a difficult thing to overcome because you really don't have a, a way to charge that or, or um, dispute that. Criminal fraud is undisputable as far as issuing banks are concerned. So volume of transactions, we need to look at all of our systems. Think about, think of this as a stress test like they do for financial organizations. They stress the system to see where it's going to break or where it has problems. One of the things that we recommend on this particular piece is go to your own website and buy something. Uh, it's, it's surprising to me, you know, Harlan and I do these these webinars, we do things all over the world in, a, in a front of literally thousands of merchants. And the number of merchants that have been to their website in the last 30 days and made a transaction is surprisingly low. And to look at what does your consumer go through? What does a fraudster see as weak spots? Try and take that product and then return it or exchange it or get a refund and see what the process is. Oftentimes that will highlight issues that you have to deal with in your own system, just going through that process itself. Yeah, uh, Don, another thing is on the merchant side, when you have a massive number of, of transactions, so the volume has, has ballooned as we're, we're seeing and we're going to see coming into the season, uh, you really have to st stress test, not just how the, 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 cardholder comes in but really thinking about things like manual review right if you've got if you've got a massive number of of transactions that have been escalated to say uh, a caution light yellow light right we don't know if these are good they need to go to manual review but if you don't have the the uh the personnel trained and ready to go to do those manual reviews what are you going to do it's going to take longer you're going to lose the sale uh, you know, there's there's just all kinds of uh, uh, sort of follow along consequences. Is it, are, is that a fair thing for them to really think about? Let's stress test our own processes in in evaluating fraud. Absolutely, because if they don't do that, then on the front end, they're probably going to reject transactions that are actually good. Right. Uh, right. Looking at them as suspicious or possible fraud, and so now your uh, your rejection rate goes up. Instead of the national average of about 2.7%, we've seen people have rejection rates of 5 to 7% because it just looks suspicious and they have nobody to manage that. And so they just turn good customers away. And that's not a great strategy either. Right. Yeah. And that, I think that actually brings us to the next slide because um, the, the thing we want to talk about is sort of the nature of transaction because, um, Don, and, and you, you you have a background in the, the criminal fraud prevention um, sector, um, but, um, you know, my, my basic real simple understanding is that, you know, a lot of the fraud prevention mechanisms are reliant on predictable sort of ordinary behavior, um, but around the holidays, you know, everything sort of goes out the window because nobody's buying behavior is the way that it is the rest of the year. It's, it's a very unique time. So people are spending way more than they would. They're buying products that they wouldn't normally buy. Um, can, can you talk about some of the challenges that, that fraud prevention just in general um, 
you know, uh, faces in the um, holiday season and maybe some of the things that, that merchants can do, simple things to, to protect themselves? Sure. Uh, every holiday season, you do see what would be considered abnormal in June is completely normal in December. Um, oh. But merchants typically, uh, if they can keep track of their cyclo cyclical nature of the seasons, they can start building patterns to say, okay, what is what is normal for the December timeframe, the November timeframe, the January timeframe? Um, because it is going to be different. People will be spending generally more than they have in the past. The, um, the thing that I will always say is about once a quarter, the payments team, the chargeback team, the fraud team, the marketing team should sit down and look at what they're dealing with. Even customer service, because customer service can tell you what kind of calls they're getting, which could be early indicators as there's a problem. And so to take a look at your fraud system, whether you manage it in-house, whether you have a third party, or whether you use your payment provider system, take a look at that and make sure it is up to date, that it's managing the things that it needs to manage, and then watch the statistics of things as they come through. Am I rejecting more transactions? Is my average uh, shopping cart higher? Um, what are the things that we're seeing this year with 2020? You've got to throw in new users. They're not going to be as sophisticated as the ones they're used to in 2019. And so that's going to make it even more tricky. That team, that collaboration inside of a merchant has got to be something that they meet maybe even on a weekly basis to say, hey, here's the trends that we're seeing, here's what we're looking at, here's what we've experienced, here's what customers are telling us. Um, you can do it that quickly and make changes in your system uh, so that you can have the highest chance of success and maximize uh, approved transactions that go through. All right. So now we're going to talk about some of the uh, 2020 trends, some some things that um, stood out to us uh, that we wanted to uh, to include in the guide. Um, the first one is, is something that we've been seeing um, with account takeover fraud. Um, Don, do you have some insight on this? Yeah, I know Harlan's uh, dealt with this as well, but this is an area that for the past two or three years, fraudsters have really been um, pushing hard into this area. We see that the number of data breaches is not going down. In fact, it's increasing dramatically over the last few years. And those data breaches are effective for several reasons. One, fraudsters can sell that information online and make money that way. Or two, they can look at, even if it's a Facebook account, um, many consumers, and I'm a consumer, so I put myself in this list, are pretty lazy with their passwords and their, their uh, account IDs. What I'm using for Facebook, there's a really good chance I'm using it for my Delta Airlines miles or my uh, bank account. And so when this kind of data is on the market and sold from one fraudster to another, they have a really good way of getting into uh, the accounts that you have online. Take a, uh, do a little introspective work and ask yourself, how many digital accounts do I have online? I did this before. I've got about 22 online accounts. That includes everything from my bank to my credit card to my uh, loyalty points. 
But then I look at how many different passwords do I use? And, you know, that's embarrassing. Um, but this is something that fraudsters have looked at and they say, gosh, if we can break into an account, it's much more valuable than stealing a pair of shoes and reselling it online. And so this has continued to go up. And in 2020, it's jumped dramatically again because um, fraudsters are just like everybody else. They want to maximize their opportunity to make money, and this is how they're choosing to do it. Account takeover fraud is very specific. If your fraud system does not have the features to manage that, look at that, uh, look at that quickly and have somebody make some recommendations for you. Yep, and the, and the next trend is uh, in e-commerce. Um, uh, Harlan, do you want to talk about maybe maybe what we've seen this uh, this year and last year on in the e-commerce front? Well, uh, sure. The the uh, mobile commerce is is sort of the I would call it the holy grail of of uh, of retail in general. And what I mean by that is when you get into mobile commerce, you're, you're potentially talking about an omni-channel approach, right? So, and this creates some really huge opportunities. And I think we'll, we'll have a slide coming up here on uh, buy online, pick up in store. But when, when you have the opportunity to sort of buy something, right? You're out and about, you're doing your thing, you can buy something and then go to a store and pick it up, for example, uh, and that might be food. It might be uh, it might be an iPhone. It could be anything. It it naturally is going to lend itself to much greater convenience for the cardholder, certainly a legitimate customer. But it's also going to lend itself uh, to uh, fraudsters who, going you know back to our last slide, who managed to take over an account, who managed to get enough information to buy stuff, who loaded that you know that. Uh, that card on their on their wallet somehow and and they got through the deal it's naturally going to lead to more fraud because again it's much easier to uh, it's much easier to steal when nobody is with you than if you're if you have to confront someone with a, a counterfeit card for example so so when we think about mobile commerce really we're talking just about, any device that is not in the point of sale or the, you know, the brick and mortar uh, or some other kind of thing. And that lends itself to both fraudulent activity, but also friendly fraud, because it's much more difficult to prove that the person got the stuff, right? For example, if you just look at the shipping piece of it, if you're buying a tangible good, you got to make sure that that you're tracking the shipment for sure. But I'll tell you one thing I like right now is Amazon. When they drop something at my door, they snap a picture of uh, the package in my doorway. And that's uh, that's really helpful for me to know that there's something there, but it's also a piece of evidence for them. So so again, this this tension between the merchants being more proactive about covering for these eventualities, chargebacks, fraudulent um, uh, activity, et cetera, et cetera. That's the one thing, but also it gives, there, there are ways to give consumers more uh, security about what they're buying, 
how it was delivered, et cetera, et cetera. I think merchants need to be very, very aware and conscious of both sides of the equation, right? We've talked about auditing as a, you know, as if you're a, a consumer coming in, but how about auditing as if you're, you know, three weeks down the road getting a chargeback, right? The, the marketing people don't think about that. No offense, Jared, but in reality, we're really, really, really talking about a, a, an overall picture as to what, is, what does it mean to get a mobile order, to deliver that either by bringing it out to the curb or sending it to, you know, some, some address, and, and how does that impact the chargeback scene down the road? I think it's an important topic. You know, let me just throw one more thing in there, Harlan, is, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier with fraud, is your mobile device has different signals, it has different uh, elements that a fraud system can look at for validation, verification, authentication, and so forth. If you have not looked at your fraud system from mobile perspective, another area that you need to check into. With 60% of fraudulent transactions from mobile devices, that's because mobile typically doesn't uh, have the same types of checkouts, the same types of forms, the same types of things that you would do on, say, a laptop or uh, another device. So just another area for you to look at with your fraud team, with your fraud system provider and everything else, there are specific things they can look at that can be really helpful in um, managing that type of fraud. Great. <clears throat> now, just I don't want to I don't want to uh, throw you a curveball dump here, but just for my own curiosity, when they say sixty percent of fraudulent transactions are for mobile devices, do we have any evidence? Is is, is your assumption that those are actual mobile devices or? Um, is there an advantage for fraudsters to spoof a mobile device for some reason? Um, is it is it easier for them to get past some of some of the fraud prevention barriers? You know, I've been doing um, dealing with fraud for about a dozen years now. These guys are extremely sophisticated, very well networked. Uh, fraudsters can now, you know, they have uh, you know we have software as a service. They have fraud as a service. You can sign up for those services, and they do that. Absolutely, they can spiff a phone, they can spiff a SIM card, um, they can make it look like uh, they're just changing the number on your account, so now they're sending information to a, a fraudster's phone number instead of yours. There's just lots of things in there that they can do that if not managed properly, you don't know it happened until you get the fraudulent charge back from the bank. So it really is one of those areas you need to pay attention to. That's great. Okay, the, the next one's uh, um, gift cards. Um, Harlan, why are gift cards going to be a, uh, a target, you think, for fraudsters this year? Well, it turns out gift cards have been a target for fraudsters every year, uh, especially e-gift cards. Uh, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's primarily this. If you can transact... Um, if you can transact on an e-gift card and then turn that into something, it's basically like stealing money. Gift cards, uh, especially, well, I would say open loop gift cards certainly are like cash, but even gift cards that are closed loop. So what I mean by open loop is like Visa has, uh, uh, you know, loadable 
cards that you can prepaid cards that are open loop. In other words, you can take them anywhere that Visa will take, you know, is taken. For example, a closed loop, an example of closed loop is uh, issued by the, the uh, retailer like Starbucks or Macy's or whatever, doesn't have a Visa or MasterCard brand on it. It's simply good at the location of Macy's, Starbucks, whatever. But those are valuable. These are, there's cash loaded on these, uh, these cards and this cash, once it's on a card, is not traceable. It's not traceable to you as the as the consumer. So if you lose it, you're going to lose it. But to the fraudster, it's like it's not traceable. I can do something with this. I could sell it online. There are uh, secondary um, uh, sites where you can sell your uh, your Barnes and Noble gift card for money, right? And so this is like giving a fraudster cash if they can get it. And so when you think about uh, this year, there will be more gift cards purchased, but the fraudsters in the midst of all this volume will be looking to monetize whatever it is that they've managed to get in terms of an account takeover. They'll monetize that and maybe they'll have you know, uh, maybe they'll figure out a way to get 100 gift cards, uh, $200 each. I mean, that's a big uh, treasure chest for a fraudster to go after. And so I think this is, this is why uh, gift cards have higher fraud rates than any other type of purchase. Yeah. And I, I think I there's think something else to remember about this too, and that is this is uh, often used as their way of laundering what they've done. Uh, you know, I stole this item, I resold it, I got some cash, I put it into a gift card, I took that to an exchange, I got cash for it. So it's a little bit more difficult to trace the fraudsters' uh, steps. The other thing that I think um, we've got to be careful of is you, we used to call uh, January the second Christmas. This year, maybe more than other years, gift cards are going to be an item that people just get. Uh, I think holiday get-togethers yeah. are going to be limited. Rather than shipping something, I can ship them uh, a gift card, either an e-gift card or an actual gift card. In January, I bet you the sales aren't going to be that far behind December because of that type of trend. Yeah, that's that's. I was going to say the same thing, Don. I think I think this year, you know, gift cards have probably always been problematic, but I think this year they're going to be so popular that um, you know, it's there's, it's going to be much easier for fraudsters to sort of hide in the crowd, um, as it were. So, right, yeah. right encourage merchants to be diligent if um, gift cards are part of your holiday strategy and and you know and they should be probably but <clears throat> okay and uh, Harlan you, you talked about this so why don't you sort of finish that thought there the uh, buy online pick up in store um, sure. we'll just kind of go through this real quick I think yeah it's super simple. It, the, it is what it says it is. Someone buys something online, they pick it up in store. I've done it many times. Uh, I like the workflow. I can have my stuff right now immediately if I need it. Uh, and uh, it, it's a great thing. However, BOPIS, as we call it, actually sees significant fraud rates. And it says 55% increase in the rate of fraudulent attempts on BOPA sales, but I can tell you that I know of one 
you know, global retailer that sees about 30% real fraud rates on, on BOPIS. <clears throat> How is that possible? Again, in an account takeover situation, somebody is, uh, you, you live in Texas, uh, somehow the guy in, you know, uh, I don't know, New Jersey got your information. He has enough information to buy something online. He's smart enough to do it. He buys, uh, you know, a mobile phone, an iPad, and a TV uh, at Best Buy, and it's buy online, pick up in store. But the store is in New Jersey. It's not in Texas. And so this guy or gal, whatever, uh, buys this stuff. You know, you've got probably... $2,500, $3,000 worth of stuff. He goes in the store, they give him the stuff, he walks out, and you just gave this guy an incredible Christmas gift, right? The store didn't check his ID. Now, I'm not saying, that, and I'm gonna talk about that in just a second, but if you're not, as the merchant, taking care to know that this customer walking in your store actually is the one who should be picking this up, based upon the credit card and all that, you're gonna see high fraud rates. And in the early going of BOPIS, that was kind of the thing. Oh, we just set it on a counter or on a, on a shelf behind the, the, uh, the customer service desk. Somebody comes in, they have the name, we give them the stuff and off they go. And that's where you run into problems, right? Uh, last year, I went, bought something for my wife, uh, some diamond earrings uh, at Macy's. I did at BOPUS and I really wanted to see, okay, is Macy's, what's the deal with Macy's on BOPUS? Are they really following what uh, I think they should be doing? So I walk in, um, uh, I told the lady my name. The first thing she did was ask for my license. I was like, I said to her, she was probably shocked. I said, good for you asking for my driver's license. She kind of looked at me sort of bewildered and I kind of explained why. But if you're not doing some basic checking that the person coming in is the person who ought to be picking this up, you're gonna run into a lot of fraud. Um, yeah. You know, Harlan, let me throw something else in there. Two other things to consider here. And one of the reasons this is such a high fraud area is oftentimes merchants have two systems an online system and an in-store system. And true. putting the two together, uh, sometimes putting the two together don't connect really well. So um, I order something online, it's ready in 15 minutes, I go pick it up before the store system has uh, done everything, it's gone through their warehousing, their logistics, I pick it up, I'm gone, and then their store system and their online system collaborate and try to settle and go, hold it, this was fraud, we just messed up. Um, so that's, that's one area. Those two systems have to work well together. The other thing, and this is maybe, uh, I don't know if you'd call it BOPIS, but let's say I order um, uh, a meal at McDonald's and I'm gonna pick it up in 20 minutes. Um, and, and I don't know if McDonald's does this, I just threw that name out there, but many quick service restaurants will go ahead and and take the credit card or the debit card and they'll, they'll um, authorize it for $20. And then I go and pick up my meal and my meal's only $10. And yet I look at my bank statement and it's got a $20 charge and it's got a $10 charge and I think these guys screwed me. Um, 
what happens is it takes sometimes a few days for that $20 charge to come off. It will come off. All they're doing is authorizing the card before you get there to know that you will pay for this. But because that takes a little while and because that's the process, it's causing chargebacks that are um, not necessary. They're illegitimate chargebacks, but a customer is going to see that on their statement and go, hold it. These guys messed me up and they're going to call their bank. So just a couple of other areas where you buy online, pick up later that you've got to be aware of. Okay. All right. So so now um, we're going to kind of go through a, a four-step chargeback plan that we outlined in the guide. I think uh, I think it's pretty comprehensive. It should provide some actionable information for you guys. We'll try to go through this fairly quickly. I know we're getting towards the top of the hour here, but um, the, the, the first step is to prevent as many chargebacks as you can. Um, uh, and, and this specifically, um, the, the first part of the prevent is to uh, uh, prevent the chargebacks with excellent customer service. Um, Harlan, could you talk about why customer service is important for preventing chargebacks? How, how does that relate? Yeah, uh, it relates because you're the first, the, the customer service uh, representative is the first line of defense uh, to prevent a potentially disgruntled customer from going to their bank and asking the bank to give their money back rather than asking uh, asking the merchant. So I think I think that's the primary reason is you want to make sure you provide all the possible options to the to the customer when something has happened and they're upset. Yeah, in, in, in many ways, the uh, the merchants in competition with the bank for, you know, who, who can provide the best customer experience when a customer is dissatisfied. Um, right. So if you have a very difficult customer service process, whether you have to sit on the phone for 45 minutes or, you know, you have to uh, send an email and wait to get a response in two days, um, you know, the, 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 the consumers are going to turn to their bank because the banks are frankly going to provide an easier option for them to get their money back. Right. Agreed. Um, and then can you talk about some of the tools here? I, I sort of list them out, but what, what are these tools and what are kind of the differences between them? Yeah, so uh, the, the very high-level overview on these tools is there are really, they're really two types of uh, chargeback, pre-chargeback workflows that can prevent a complaint from becoming a chargeback. So if you think about the way a chargeback is, is created and issued, a cardholder uh, either buys something or they don't buy it in the case of a fraud, uh, but let's say they buy something and and something breaks. Uh, they didn't get the right stuff, for example. So the first thing that has to happen is they go and call their issuing bank. Instead of calling the merchant, they call the issuing bank. The bank at that point has no data. They have no information whatsoever on what happened in the sale, in you know who did what, whatever. They're just they just have an angry customer on the other line saying, "I didn't get the right stuff. I'm mad. Give me my money back." And and of course we're we're just human beings, and and they respond accordingly, right? So Visa, I think, was the first one to come up with a tool in real time to provide, uh, shall we say, uh, data to both the cardholder and to the bank, the issuing bank, 
with something that was originally called VMPI, Visa Merchant Purchase Inquiry. It has now been renamed to Order Insights, which is a great name actually, if you think about it, Order Insights. Who needs to have Order Insights? Well, that issuer needs that data. So the idea is complaint happens within two seconds if uh, they use our APIs. We can send data back to the issuer from the actual uh, sale and fulfillment of that of that order. And at that point, the issuer may say, well, look, it looks like you picked this up. It looks like it was uh, fine with you at the time, and now you're coming back. We think this is valid, and we're going to block chargeback rights. So there's there's tools now that can actually provide data that will inform the cardholder and the issuer as to what's happening. That's the order insight uh, sort of thing. There are also tools that that will um, are actually for refunds. It's a way for a cardholder to get a refund before a chargeback happens. That's good for the merchant if they're uh, over their chargeback transaction ratio. So that would be the CDRN. RDR is uh, what's known as rapid uh, dispute resolution. It's kind of the same thing, just a pre-chargeback uh, resolution. And Ethica also has those. We have enriched alerts and uh, so forth. So there are there are lots of tools out there that allow you to prevent and or refund before it becomes a chargeback. Hmm. All right, now let's go to this next section here. Um, the next step is to identify the source of the chargebacks that could not be prevented. Um, Don, can you talk about why, why is it important that, that um, merchants understand why a chargeback happened, that they're, that they're able to identify the source, and what are some of the challenges that they may have with that? Certainly, because um, one of the things that I hear often is, well, the reason code said fraud, so I can't do anything about that, right? Um, I think reason codes are about 50% accurate, maybe less. Uh, as Harlan said, when a merchant, when when a consumer calls their bank, their bank has very little information about that transaction unless they're in one of these programs where they can pull up that data. They are actually in the worst position to make a decision on a transaction uh, than anybody else in the process. The merchant has more information, the consumer has more information, but not the bank. And so they're going to list it as fraud. Well, if you're not familiar with how the process works, that reason codes are only slightly accurate, um, that's going to cause a problem. We've looked at millions and millions and tens of millions of chargebacks and found that there are three sources of chargebacks. True criminal fraud, which we've talked about. Merchant error, which is... Um, gosh, the descriptor on my bill is incorrect or it's not uh, recognizable and customers call and charge back because they don't recognize the purchase, something like that. Or um, they ordered green and they got blue and now there has a problem with going through the refund exchange process. Those are merchant errors that can be corrected by the merchant and save probably 20 to 30% of your chargebacks. And then you've got friendly fraud. This is folks that either are trying to game the system, which happens a lot. It's happened even more during the pandemic. I think we've seen a rise in the last several months of about 70% of friendly fraud. Whether people do this on purpose or because they are ignorant of the process doesn't really matter. It affects the merchant the same way. We look at each one of those friendly fraud attempts as something that needs to be disputed 100% of the time. 
So unless you know where the chargeback is coming from, it's very difficult to remedy the situation. A chargeback is merely a symptom of another issue that is happening. It's a symptom of fraud. It's a symptom of merchant error. It's a symptom of consumers trying to do something that they probably shouldn't. We still need to manage the chargeback, but if we don't know the source, we can't put the right things in place to lower those, reduce those, or even um, uh, dispute those in the best possible uh, fashion for success. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's about using the right tool to solve the right problem. Good way to put it, Jared. Okay, and then the next step is to challenge all Ill illegitimate chargebacks. Um, you know, I think I think on a surface level, it's pretty obvious why you'd want to challenge um, illegitimate chargebacks, but there's some benefits beyond that too. Um, Harlan, could could you kind of walk us through real quick what the uh, why 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 it's important that merchants um, um, refute chargebacks that are illegitimate? Well, uh, a few things um, that that come to my mind when you get a chargeback, it, it essentially is a signal, stated or not that you're a fraudulent merchant. I think every merchant needs to understand that a chargeback is like a shot across the bow by the issuing bank and by the consumer that, hey, you treated me in a fraudulent manner. That deserves a response, right? Whether you win, lose, whatever, draw, that deserves a response because your reputation is on the line. We talk about that, it improves your reputation. Well, let's be clear about what that reputation is. And the reputation goes further than just a, an agent in a call center some way, somewhere getting a call from a, a disgruntled customer. If you have too many chargebacks, oftentimes, like every business, like every a business that moves money, they have fraud filters. And if you get too many chargebacks, they'll score your descriptor. They will put algorithms in place that will begin to automate disputes. And how do, how do they do that? You've all seen uh, where you get a text message. Hey, do you recognize this, this uh, transaction? That was not generated by a customer or cardholder. That's generated algorithmically by something that's a little bit different in the process, right? And if you have higher chargebacks, you're gonna get more of those and they will file chargebacks without the consumer knowing that they even did that, right? So very important that you do that, right? There's a lot of other reasons, your fraud stats, uh, there's there's just tremendous amount of data in these that allow you to run your business better. And if there's anything a business should want to do is run their business better. Because again, as Don said, a chargeback is a symptom. Find the cause of that symptom and you will eliminate the disease. Right. Okay, and the last step is to adapt your chargeback process based on the data. Um, in 60 seconds or less, Don, can you talk about the importance <laughs> of data? Oh, data is everything. Uh, data helps you run your fraud system better. It helps you run your customer service. It helps you run your marketing. Your Everything is all about the data. And if you don't have that data uh, taken care of and it's clean, pre and post transaction, you're going to have problems. Um, if, if you find all these things and don't adapt, it's just like not doing it. So you've got to be willing to make the changes after you find out how things are going. 
All right, great. And then we are going to finish up here. And the last idea, this is this is uh, something, Harlan, you brought to my attention, this idea. Um, you know, uh, this holiday season, you have basically two choices if you're a merchant. Either become a chargeback expert, learn how to manage your chargebacks effectively, or just hire us. Um, right. And, and with that, I'm going to I'm gonna put this back up at the beginning. Harlan, if you have anything to add to that, but I'm going to put your... Uh, email address is back up on the screen. So if anybody has any questions, they can reach out directly to either of you guys. Yeah, um, I, I would just you have add, any summarizing? I would, I would just add to that, you know, become an expert or hire one. Sorry to interrupt, by the way. Uh, just remember that uh, in order to be an expert, you that means you read all of the rules for Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover. And we're, we're not talking about light reading here. We're talking about thousands of pages. Last year alone, in 2019, by uh, September, I think there were 147 rule changes. There were four or five major regulatory changes like uh, uh, the SCA in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So this is by no means a, a, uh, an easy thing to do. Becoming an expert is a full-time job. And for us, it means having teams of people dedicated to keeping up to date with the rules, the regulations, implementing those in processes and in how we analyze the data. So it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. There's there's a thousand pages, but it's not just it's not the same thousand pages. I think that's probably the thing that gets frustrating is that they have a, a hundred uh, hundred page addendum. It seems like every month or two um, that they add to that. So not only do you need to to be an expert on the initial thousand pages, but you need to constantly be, um, you know, um, updating, aware of the slight changes that they make throughout. So, okay, with that, I, I appreciate everybody taking their time today. Um, thank you, guys. Thank you, Harlan. Thank you, um, Don, for, for uh, joining me on this webinar. And um, we'll um, let everything go. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and reach out to either Harlan or Don, and I'm sure that um, they'll get back to you. Have a great holiday season, everyone. Thank you. Stay safe.